In season two, episode 11, I interviewed a child advocate, Patty Fitzgerald, and the warning signs that she shared are very evident in today's story. Welcome everybody, I'm your host, Barb Jordan. Today's guest is a former star athlete, a member of the U.S. speed skating team, and she's going to share a lot about her past. You're going to see a lot about her inner strength and how she became the woman and the advocate that she is today. My guest today is Bridie Farrell. She is the founder of America Loves Kids. And Bridie, first of all, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me on. Yes, yes. I, I've told people and I've shared your YouTube link uh, with them that you're going to be on this podcast and everybody thinks it's, in, it's incredible that you're doing this. And it's interesting because you and I, we spoke briefly and we, we connect because we feel that we have a connection through being a victim. But when I shared your link with others, their thought process was, oh my God, that poor girl. Where when I speak to you and I know what you're doing today, I think, my God, Bridie, you're awesome. I am so proud of you for speaking up. Looking at your life, you have quite a story. So from 30,000 feet, tell us about Bridie. First of all, how did you get into speed skating? Yeah, so uh, the Bridie Farrell story. Um, I am from Saratoga Springs, New York, which is a small town in upstate New York, where speed skating was a very normal thing to do. Um, I'm one of six kids, a good Irish family, and my older brother was in speed skating. So my father thought I could just go with him. No need to travel to the rink for two different sports. I was originally in figure skating. I So I started skating when I was six, speed skating when I was six, and moved up to the, through the ranks like any normal kid. When I was 15, I was still living in my hometown, Saratoga, and training for the 1998 Olympic trials in short track speed skating. When Andy Gable moved to our town to train with our coach, he was 33 at the time. He was the number one ranked speed skater in the entire country. He was on three Olympic teams and had an Olympic medal when he moved to our town. And I was uh, in ninth grade going into 10th grade. Well, here you are growing up in your in your town. I'll call it a small town, although you might not think so, but I'm from California, so everything looks little when you're when you're looking at the rest of the country. But here you are, this up-and-coming speed skater. At this point, what levels at, up to 15 had you achieved in speed skating? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you clearly were an athlete and understand that it just doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I, I mean, speed skating, you are in age groups and you start racing in maybe your age group nationals. I went to my first nationals, I think in sixth grade, maybe 1994 it was. And then you will race in the, there's the national age group and then there's the, the, U.S. championships, which is everyone combined. And I competed in my first U.S. championships when I was 14. So the year before Andy Gable moved to our town. So, I mean, I was moving up in the ranks. I certainly wasn't by far, by any stretch of the imagination, the best in the country among all skaters, but was someone that people look to for possible, um, you know, four or five years down the road as someone who could be good. Well, here you are, this up-and-coming speed skater, and Andy Gable is coming to your hometown to train. Do you know who he is prior to him getting there? 
I certainly knew who he was because of his accolades and accomplishments in the sport. He, I mean, he was a phenomenal, phenomenal skater. He had um, just great ability on, on ice. And so I obviously knew who he was and was really excited for him to come to town in speed skating. It's different than almost any other sport in that we train on the same sheet of ice or the same field, if you will, where if you think of, I mean, softball and baseball, you don't have men and women together soccer. You don't. Um, so it's, we all men and women fast to slow all skate on the same size track. And so we're all together. And there's also a lot of value between a younger skater being behind a more experienced skater and mimicking the technique um, where you might say, okay, well, that sounds like track and field of running, but really there, you don't have the slower skater, slower runners with fast runners. So speed skating was interesting in that you could be 15 and up and coming, and you could be 33 in the number one and both training together at the same summer training in the park. And then the same ice training in the winter. So that's how our paths are able to cross, cross mm. so much. Andy comes to town to train with your coach. Is that correct? Yep. Andy moved to Saratoga to train with our coach. And over the years, it was quite normal. People would come in and out of Saratoga to train, to train with us. And like I said, it was Saratoga. It was a, a little Mecca for speed skating. It's known for health history and horses, but I think it's known <laughs> for speed skating. <laughs> Okay. What was your first encounter with Andy? Did you see him? Did you see him at the ice rink? Where did you, where did you see him? Oh, well, I knew who he was from watching videos and from, he had come to our rink a couple of years before to skate with us before going to a competition. So I, I very much knew who he was. At, when he shows up to your hometown, what was your first encounter with him? This was when you're 15. What, what was mm -hmm. your first encounter with him? I'd have to think about my first encounter when he was moving once he moved to Saratoga. But like I said, I have three sisters and two brothers. So a small herd of children in my family. And we are all very fortunate to be doing lots of activities, sports and music lessons and all sorts of things. And so it was quite a, a shuttling service that my mom had to organize while my father worked around the clock. And so when someone offered to help with the rides to and from skating practice. It was a gift from above for my mom. And so she gladly took it. And he seemed like a nice enough person and was very well respected in the sport. He was an adult. It wasn't like hmm. I was getting a ride home from a kid. So it all seemed, um, one might say too good to be true. <laughs> okay. So let me take, let me, let me, let me, let me take you back. So he's moving to town. He's moving to Saratoga, correct? Mm -hmm. To train with your coach. When did he befriend you? Like, when did he, I know he ends up taking you to practice. He does, he starts, you know, doing things for you, doing favors for you. He wants to, he wants to do your ice skates, which is a big deal. How did this transpire? What do you remember? Well, I remember that the value of being a little kid behind a really experienced skater. And there was another guy that I used to try and follow in practice to mimic his technique. Cause it was like, that's who I wanted to be when I grew up. Right. And so I remember some Andy giving me some pointers about technique or whatever. And I must've been receptive to the coaching. And so 
he, you know, he kept talking to me and he had previously where he lived in Milwaukee, he was known for helping a, a young skater there who was my age. Um, and so, I mean, it's tough because in the sport of speed skating, I think it's really valuable for the experienced athletes to train with the novice skaters and to, for that back and forth, I think it keeps the faster skaters humble and I think it makes the slower skaters faster. Mm. So I think it, it's a good um, way for it to work around until it doesn't, until someone takes that position of power and trust and status and manipulates it for their satisfaction. How did it start? So one day he said to you, let, let me take care of your, your skates. Is that some, somewhere? So like, he how was, did he get close to you? How did he do yeah, that? Right, right. So he was, he was driving my teammate and I home and he would drop her off every day, back out of her driveway, go to the end of the street, take a right, take a right. And then it was my house. So he got her driveway, take a right and take a right. And one day he took a left and he went down three streets in our neighborhood and pulled over into a dead end and unbuckled his seatbelt and looked at me and said, can I kiss you? And I said, nothing. There's not a fight or flight, but rather freeze. And I said, nothing. So to answer everyone's question, did I say no? Did I push him away? No, I didn't. Um, so I was 15. I remember it quite distinctly. It was in the summer and I knew that I couldn't just get out of the car and walk home, my parents would say, why are you walking home? And who would believe me? And also, how would I get to practice the next day? I mean, there was just so much loaded into that. Um, then he stopped kissing me and put his seatbelt on and drove four blocks over. And the next day you saw him at practice and everything you- was normal. Yeah. Everything was, you know, play cool. And then it just was never the same. And it would go from him dropping off my teammate and then dropping me off to we would go and get a meal or we would go for a drive. Um, I mean, all things that sound quite odd to say now with a 33 year old and a 15 year old. Um, And then eventually he brought me to his house. He had rented a house in Saratoga. Um, So it just escalated to, you know, sexual abuse on a multiple times a week and it went on for months. Wow. When you guys were around each other at training, did you guys give each other the eyes? Did you just pretend it was business as usual? What do you remember from that? Um, I don't really have anything specific to say about that. Just that um, I know that I was a teenage kid that wanted to be really good and was willing to put in the extra work. And so if someone was going to give me tips on technique, then I I would take that from whomever was willing to help in that capacity. But um, yeah, it all just changed really quickly. Sure, sure. Obviously, uh, you rode in the car, your drives got longer and longer, you went to his house with him, just you, you and him. So did you handhold in the car? Did he put his hands on your legs in the car? Did it just progress? Yeah. I mean, it, it progressed. And when we went to his house, it certainly progressed. I will say on the record that we did not have sex. So by definition, he did not rape me, but I think that was part of the confusion for me in that being raised as the good Catholic girl, I was 
that I knew that was over the line, but everything in between I didn't. And Mm -hmm. so it was that confusion that left me in such a fog for so long, wondering what was right or wrong or how wrong or that, um, just utter state of confusion and also just respecting him and the accomplishments he had in the sport and the prestige he had in the sport. He was, um, you know, ever, everyone knew him, everyone knew him internationally. And he ultimately went on to make the 98 Olympic team and got fourth in the thousand meter actually. Uh, during this time where he was offering, of course, doing favors for you, acting wonderful to your parents, did you ever tell your, your mom or dad that you went to his house, just you and him? Did you, did you keep secrets from them or did they know like how open your friendship was? We, I never talked about any of it with anyone. Um, so the time you spent, the time you spent with Andy alone, you never shared that like, Hey, I stopped by Andy's house. I uh, never shared any of that. Correct. No, that was, um, no. I mean, a yeah. lot of it too was, uh, I set up my high school schedule so that I would be able to take two hour blocks every other day, eight, AB days. And so he would pick me up from school. So, I mean, my mom didn't even know for how long I was right in or out of school. Cause there was also, you could, there was extra ice training that we go to during the week. And tell us, a, tell us about that because a lot of us don't know what it's like to be an elite level. Like you were, what, what was your training schedule like to be a speed skater? Oh, it's so funny because it seems so normal. And I remember I'm 39 now. And I remember when I was skating and then shortly after I was done, people would ask me to come and talk about it because they found it to be so interesting. And I was just, it's just a normal life. Well, now I'm like, there's nothing normal about it. I mean, I'd wake up early, like five every morning and a couple days a week, we'd go to the gym. Other days you do a different workout. I was normal high school student. My senior year, I was student council president. Then you come home from school and my family, I always came home and, um, my sister was a very, very, very good ballerina and, um, started a professional company in, in California actually. And so she and I would eat a real dinner right after school. And then we would both go to our training sessions and I'd skate for a couple hours, three nights a week, and then come home and eat more and, um, find some time to fit in some homework and then go to bed. I mean, it was, it was a lot of working out and, and looking back now, if I, what used to be a warm up, warm up before even getting on the ice to do the warm up is now like a workout, which is just so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. People don't know what athletes go through. They just think that you show up and you're great. Uh, they don't really know all the hours of dedication. Well, well, let's talk about this. So, obviously, this inappropriate relationship continues, and you continue. Tra- you continue training, and did you ever go to competitions with him? The same competitions? Oh, of course we did. So that season that he was in Saratoga training, we went to a few together, including the 1998 Olympic trials that were held in Lake Placid, New York. When he was done skating, he was done racing, but he was not done with skating. He went on to be the vice president and the president of US speed skating and moved up the ranks of the national governing body also within known within the Olympic committee, us Olympic committee, and also known within the international skating union. So even when, while he retired, 
from being an athlete, he certainly had a presence at the rink my entire skating career, my whole short track career. So the from 98 to 06, when I continued skating, I would see him at competitions in the US and um, internationally, he would go to some because of his position in US speed skating. How how long did the inappropriate relationship with you and Andy continue? You were 15 at the time. How long did it continue? So it began in the summer um, and we, it went until he left for the Nagano Olympics, the end of January, beginning of February, that time. I remember, I know it was after the Super Bowl in January in 1998. So more than half a year. Did he ever say anything or you guys just he was leaving to go to the Olympics and it was just kind of just, that was the end of it. Did you miss him? Did he send messages to you or like, how did it end? Well, I think it would all be different now because now I really sound old, but there wasn't much email or certainly texting. Right. So, or having your own phone line. Um, but he, I, he went away to, he went off to the games and competed at the Olympics. And then I saw him at, the national championships were in Saratoga Springs. So I saw him then. I mean, I regularly saw him. So when mm. he left, it was only for a month or so because I then saw him in other competitions that he came to watch, not raise that. It must have been really a mental anguish in your mind of this is wrong. This is, you know, this is okay. I want to be good. He's helping me, but this is inappropriate. You mentioned a time to me where you went to homecoming and that was kind mm. of your first inclination of, I don't know if this is really supposed to be happening. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So I wasn't trying at least to be a normal 10th grade kid. And I was going to homecoming with a classmate who ironically lived down the street from Andy Gable. And Andy asked me if I was going to any after parties. And I well, I don't know. And he said, well, you're not, you have to come right home after the dance and call me as soon as you came home, come home. And I said to my one, my date, my mom to come pick me up. And nobody was surprised because I was so dedicated toward speed skating. So it didn't seem abnormal to anyone, but it was at that moment that I knew like, wait a second. He's, he has a lot of control here and this isn't normal, right? To have to come home. And I remember going home and getting in my twin bed at my parents' house. And there was a little yellow nightstand to the side of the bed and calling him, but going under the covers so my parents couldn't hear because that'd be weird. So knowing that is weird, um, but yet calling him to make to appease him to make sure he was happy um, that I was home alone. So that was in October of 97. And I knew that the dynamic was certainly off. I also did not know how to get out of it or, or what to do. Yeah. I, I'm sorry that happened to you, Bridie. I, I really am. Fast forward, he leaves speed skating. You're still in speed skating and he becomes the vice president of USA speed skating. And you're trying to, was it the world championships where he had a conversation with you? Right. So I made the 2000 world championship team and he was at the uh, competition in Sheffield, England. And I recall him coming up to me, asking him, have you told anyone? Did you tell I was dating someone on the team? Did you tell him? And 
I said, no, I hadn't, I hadn't told anyone, but I was also, wait a second, you're covering your tracks. It's two years later and you're making sure that, you know, all, all the pieces are cleaned up. Um, so that was another moment in hindsight, it really stands out at the moment at that, that night, it was in this castle the reception was in England. It was amazing. I, I just remember thinking again, like there's a control here and a, a power thing that's going on. And also, I mean, I was decent at speed skating. I wasn't the best, right? I, that year I was fifth in the country and top five make the world team. So I wasn't Bonnie Blair or Apollo Ono where you were just far and away the best. I was always on the bubble. And so mm. I didn't want to rock the boat and I liked what ski speed skating gave me and getting me out of my crazy chaotic house. I mean, it was the best place in the world to grow up, but doesn't mean there weren't a ton of kids there, you know? And so it just let me do and see things that I wouldn't otherwise, or that my siblings didn't do. Um, but it came together of the, the disparity. Let me ask you something, because I know that, yes, you have to have physical talent to be an athlete, but to achieve at a high level, you have to have mental toughness. You have to have a mental game. And so I'm going to ask you this. How much energy you say, oh, I was on the bubble of being one of the top two or one of the top three. You're saying you're five. You give yourself a five ranking. Do you think looking back on this now that had you not had to deal with Andy and Andy, here you are years later when Andy's gone, going to competitions and knowing he's there, having him pull you aside and say, Hey, are you covering my tracks for what I did wrong? How much mental anguish was that on you? I don't know. I mean, hindsight's 2020 and had I done this differently, I would have been better if I had been more patient in one of the 500 meter races at the 2002 Olympic trials, I would have done better with that competition. Right. So there's all sorts of moments where you can point to, um, I will say two things though, that today I get up and I, I talk about being molested as a teenager. I talk about these hard moments of the long lasting effects it's had on my life, but I think, and I believe that I'm here not because of those experiences, but despite those experiences. So I don't think he made me tough. Um, I also, and I wonder like, why, why me? And when you always talk about child sexual abuse, it's always, all the literature talks about that the predator picks out the vulnerable child, the outcast child, the sheep, right? And so how did, like, what did he see in me that I was the one that was chosen to be the prey, but at, in the end, or at least 20 years later, if he's going to pick one of us, I'm, I'll be the sacrificial lamb. Cause I think I turned out okay. And I'm doing something with it. And I wouldn't wish my experiences over the last 20 years at moments, um, on anyone, but now that I've been through it, like I know I can. And so in a way, I would rather knowing that I can get through it. I'd rather take it than let one of my other teammates have taken the chance on it. Mm. Yeah. Because he ended up picking the leader of the pack. <laughs> um, we're going to get into what you're doing to help others. But before we do, Brody, if, if there is a, specifically a young person out there 
that is being abused sexually, what would be your advice to them? Well, a lot of things. One is I've gone and spoken at high schools. Um, I used to live in New York city and I volunteered at an all girls high school for a couple, like eight or nine years. And I would say that I was molested and not everyone would know what that was. Or I would say that I was sexually abused and still not all the girls knew what that was. So I think one thing is that we need to help demystify this for kids. I know growing up in a very Catholic Irish household, we spoke of none of this. And so there wasn't even vocabulary to explain what was happening to me. So in those situations, when I'm talking to these young girls and boys, um, you know, it's basically when someone touches you under your underwear, your top, your bottom underwear kind of thing. Um, so if this is happening to someone out there, I'm sorry it is. And there's something you can do about it. And you have to speak up and you have to call people. And it sounds like you're, so you're supposed to be able to call the people that are closest to you, but most of these abusers are also close to you. They're never, not never, but rarely a scary man in a windowless van. It's our coaches, our uncles, our teammates, our stepfathers, our brothers, our mothers. And so it's someone that is close to us. So speak up and keep speaking up and speak to your friends because sadly more of them have are or have gone through what you're going through. Talk to your friends, moms. They may um, see something and they may be able to help you. They may have been through it themselves. Um, but if you in your, your bones feel that what's happening isn't right, then it's not right. And to speak up and to keep, keep telling someone until until someone listens. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you were going through it, did you confide in any of your teammates? No one. I yeah. told no one. It's hard. I told no one for um, so long. I, I mean, yeah. So I carried it all. Okay. Well, you, you end your skating career and you try to live a normal life and you attend Cornell University. Is that correct? Indeed, I did. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And I you're did. taking a class on adolescence. Tell us about the light bulb that went off. Yeah. So it's a funny story because I, there's usually that class that you don't want to take in college. And I had transferred into Cornell and ended up throwing away a lot of credit. So I said, well, can I use any of these classes? So I don't have to take this class. And it was a um, human development course. And they said, no, you have to take this to graduate. I said, fine. So I took this course and the end project, you could choose what you wanted to do. And one of the options was to write a paper about what we learned in the course and how that relates to your own life. And so I wrote this paper saying, oh my gosh, maybe that wasn't a real relationship and that there was some sort of um, sexual abuse there and that a child at 15 hasn't developed enough to make these calls or stand up or know what's going on. And that's why we have laws in place uh, to protect children. And so it was the first time when I was 26 that I thought maybe it didn't just not feel right, but maybe it wasn't right. So I wrote this in a paper and handed it to the professor and she called me and said, you know, do you want to talk about this? <laughs> um, 
And so she then walked me to or helped me, I don't remember, get to a, a therapist at Cornell. And um, because of privacy and respect uh, laws, she wasn't able to disclose to the therapist why she was bringing me over. And so she, the therapist didn't know. And I never told the therapist at Cornell. I didn't tell anyone for years and years. Fast forward, I was giving a speech in Ithaca, New York a year or two ago and to like 200 people. And I told the story because I was in Ithaca and she's a teeny little woman. And um, Professor Shellhouse Miller was in the crowd and came up and said, hello, it was pretty cool. So she put it all together. So without her, well, first of all, without that assignment, and yeah. then without her reaching out to you saying, do you know that this is inappropriate? None of that ever would have happened. You wouldn't be sitting where you are today. Uh, who knows? Who knows what would have made me click it together. Maybe it wouldn't have hit me until me too. Maybe it would have, you know, taken so much longer. Um, I don't know, but it was definitely when I was 26 that I was able to make the connection, which was after the statute of limitation had closed. So let's, let's fast forward to today. And of course, we're still going to reflect America loves kids. You founded this. What is it? So I founded America Loves Kids. We are a nonprofit organization that is creating a movement to end child sexual abuse. I think that it is going to be addressed by education. So helping people be aware that one in four girls and one in six boys are sexually abused by the time they're 18. Helping people with vocabulary, like I said earlier. It has to do with helping policymakers and legislatures and thought leaders in this space about what policy is best. What is best for the individual survivor? What is best to dismantle the institutions that protect the abusers? And then um, we also are helping people now when they're moving forward with their case to finding um, trauma-informed legal counsel. Uh, a lot of work. Do you do a lot of travel with that? Yeah, we, we do. We do a lot of travel. I'm also associated with a C4 organization, which is allowed to do lobbying. So when pre-COVID, we were traveling a lot to state capitals and meeting with legislatures and um, doing a lot of travel, but still um, there's a lot of movement and there's a lot. It's every corner of the country I go to, there's someone that relates to me. Um, and I also do a lot of speaking at different events that aren't necessarily just for uh, anti-crime or pro-victim, that kind of event, but just, you know, speaking to corporations to getting people to see something from a different vantage sure, point. Sure. So let's go back to Andy Gable. Obviously, you know, at this point in your life that it was not your fault because it's never a victim's fault. So he took advantage of you. Once you came forward and told your story, what happened? So I... So great question. So I stopped speed skating, short track speed skating when I was, I think, 24. And I went to Cornell, like you said. Then I made a comeback to speed skating when I was 30 or 31 uh, to try out for the 2014 Olympics that were held in Sochi, Russia. And I came back to speed skating, skating long track. So it's similar, but different. I moved from my apartment in Brooklyn, New York, and my smart car to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was 
a cultural shift, one could say. <laughs> Who welcomed one, but definitely different. I was the only uh, smart car in the Pettit uh, skating rink parking lot. But I went, I walked in the rink and it was all the same. I mean, it was all the same in terms of the rickety benches that you sit on were still the same and smelled the same and the ice felt the same. And it was, I was back. It was great. It was everything I wanted, but it was also the same in that Andy Gable's name is hanging from the banners and his photo is in the hall of fame. And the culture was the same. And there was also this little girl that just seemed so eager to, to work hard and train. And she was my little shadow much like I spoke about at the beginning, how it just, there's a lot of value in following an older, more experienced skater. And that's when I thought to myself that, wait a second, like this, I will do anything for this, not to happen to this little girl behind me. So I was uh, approached by a journalist, Mitch Tyke, who wanted to do a, a radio broadcast because it was with uh, national public radio out of Milwaukee. And um, he wanted to do about a podcast about being older and being 31 and making a comeback. And I said, sure, but there's more to my story. And there certainly was a lot <laughs> more to my story. So I went public with being um, sexually abused by Andy Gable when I was 15 and he was 33 in uh, the end of February in 2013. Did Mitch know you were going to speak about that when you said there's more to my story? Well, Mitch, I would say a Andy Gable has certainly changed my life and has been an impact on my life. But I would say Mitch Tyke is the person who's probably changed my life the most mm -hmm. in that he believed me and he had to make sure he had to run it up and down for him to be able to do the show. And he is the first person that gave my voice any volume and he he changed the course of my life i always think that it's important for victims to speak out as difficult as it is it's important because if it's happened to you it's probably happened to others has there ever been any other stories of anybody else stepping forward and making any other claims against andy a week after actually. So I came forward and the following week, another skater came forward. So I came. well, first off, po pause for a second. I came forward on a Thursday and the following day, Friday in the Chicago Tribune, Andy Gable admitted to an inappropriate sexual relationship with you. Well, I was the only one that had spoken out so far. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so generally he did not, he did not name me, but it was in response to the articles about me. Um, it went out on the NPR radio in Milwaukee, but then it was picked up by everywhere. I mean, I thought it would be a big story in speed skating, but um, it was on every news outlet. And so he had to reply and he did it through the Chicago Tribune. The following day, that Friday, I said, well, thanks for, you know, not denying it. That certainly makes my life easier. And nobody does that. I appreciate that. But no, you can't be in a position of power. You can't be in leadership. You cannot be on the side of an ice rink. You cannot be on the side of a pool deck. You cannot be the conductor of a youth orchestra. Like, no. And so the following day he resigned, right? That just doesn't happen. 
Um, and so I was, he was um, surprised, wait. but then the next week someone came forward. So it was clear why he was trying to make it go away. Let me, let me ask you, you said he was in a position of power. Was he at the time still with USA skating? So he was, um, chairman of the short track international oh my skating union. Yeah. So actually, so the person who put the medals around the necks of the men's relay team in social and, and Sochi, um, Sochi Olympics was his replacement. What were you doing in Wisconsin when all of this broke and it went national and it went to all the different outlets? No, no, no. I wasn't in Wisconsin. I was in Salt Lake city for my first big race. Oh my! It just, it just happened that when it finally went through all legal through NPR, that it was there, like, we're going to go with it on this Thursday morning. And I was on the ice skating training. I raced Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I was on ice training and a long track oval is the same as a track and field, like a running track. And then inside it, there's two ice hockey rinks and the short track national team was training on the inside. And I was skating around the outside. And the coaches of the long track and short track team were my former teammates. So I knew everybody that was there. Um, and I knew this was going to hit and it, I was skating, skating, skating. And then all of a sudden that like just the laptops that were on the pads of the short track ring, there's like this open. I just saw my, my face on all of them. And I said, well, I guess the story's out now. Wow. Wow. What was the response from your family? The initial response. I'm sure this has taken a lot of years to process, but what was the initial response when this story broke? Well, when the story broke, it was a few years after I had told my parents. I um, I had told my family first, and I had told a few people in speed skating that were really important to me and close to me. Um, before I came forward. And then I told my family when I was going to go public. Um, And I think it's really important. I don't think it's fair, but I think it's important for when someone comes forward with a massive bombshell of information like this, that I, I said this to the world and it was the first that they, whether that's someone on my team or a mother or a sibling or whomever, it's the first time they're hearing it. And it takes time to just let that sit in. And no one is prepared to hear that their child or their sister or their friend was molested by someone they trusted. Right. And so how does everyone react? People react all different ways. I mean, some people close to me took years to, for us to work through that this, in fact, wasn't my fault. And I just think coming forward, that person, that survivor needs all the support in the world. And so it's not fair to say the survivor. And by the way, people are probably going to lash out at you or react in a way that's not very nice. (laughs) And you need to understand that they're just learning this information. Like that's not a fair way of going about it, but it's the way it is. Um, So it was, it, it was a mixed bag. I'll say that the athletes were very supportive of me. Um, you know, high school friends were very supportive. It was better than I thought it would be. How was the support of us speed skating? 
Uh, U.S. speed skating and I have not seen eye to eye. <laughs> not a surprise. Not a surprise. I'm on your side, Bridie. I'm on your side. Uh, uh -huh. you, you made a comment to me. Yeah. And it had to, had to do like, like, I mean, you're, you're telling me the story that there you are, you know, at another competition and this story breaks and I'm saying to you, what a distraction, like yeah, again, mental, it, mentally, that's a toll on you. There you are skating and you're watching everybody's laptops open. You know, the story's breaking. So let's say it's not you. Let's say it's another young skater that has been abused or another young athlete in another sport. How much harder is it to have to deal with something like this while trying to achieve your goal in sport? Well, it definitely adds a lot to it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how things would be different if things went one way or another. I mean, six weeks, so it's six weeks before the Olympic trials in 2014. So in like November, 2013 or something, I was going to the starting line and I didn't feel well. I just didn't feel well. So I ended up scratching for the race. Turns out I had my gallbladder removed that afternoon, right? Like that's unfortunate too. But what are the chances right. of a young, healthy person who's training that needs to have their gallbladder out? Right. So I, I don't know. I just You've dealt with the cards I'm dealt. That's right. You've had a lot of surgeries over the year. How many surgeries have you had? I think 14, 14 12 orthopedic. Yeah. 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 Uh, you've been through a lot, but I want to say that, you know, you may not have a, an Olympic gold medal to go around your neck, but, uh, in every aspect, I think you're golden. I do. No, I certainly do. And I want to thank you for the work that you do. Is there anything that you want to share that I haven't asked you about? Well, first, I just really appreciate your show and your podcast and your continuing and relentless effort to bring on so many different voices and perspectives. And I think that's just so important. It really, it really is. And I think that I know that it helps all different kinds of people, but then one person in all different ways. And so there's just a lot of value to what you're doing. So thank you. Thanks, Bridie. That means a lot to me. The one thing I would want to say to folks out there, my work now revolves a lot around opening up opportunity, period of time for people whose statute of limitations has expired for child sexual abuse to come forward and file a civil lawsuit. And it is very hard to decide to file a lawsuit. It is very hard to find a lawyer is very hard to sign off on that complaint and submit it to the court. Um, that whole process is really hard. And I've changed my focus these days as this, the, to help people that are trying to do just this. And I've made and sought out what, what firms are trauma informed, who has social workers on their staff versus just, you know, hard ass lawyers. Um, that there's so much more to this. And um, it, you have, if you were sexually abused as a kid in New York, you have until August to file a lawsuit. And if you don't do it by then, you never can. And you can file a lawsuit against your abuser and any institution that covered that up. So that could be a priest, 
in the church and the diocese. That could be a teacher in the school. It could be your uncle. You can sue people even if they don't have means, but for that closure for yourself, um, I will say it's not for everyone. It's pretty brutal. Um, but for people to look into it, that in New York, you have until August, New Jersey, you have to the end of the year. And we're working on passing legislation in other states. And we are always welcoming people to um, join the fight and share their story and really help us move this movement along. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Bridie, for all the work that you're doing. And I know it's it's not always easy. I know your life was not always easy, but hopefully the changes that you make you know, are going to give you a lot of great days presently and ahead. It has. It lets me meet people like you. So I appreciate that. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, thank you so much. You are now part of the ripple effect. And I will, I will definitely be in touch. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Bye. If you have questions for Bridie Farrell, please visit her website at America loves kids org. She was exceptional, and I love the strength not only that she had as a young athlete to continue to compete, to do a comeback, but to come forward after all these years and to do the work that she's doing to make a difference. I think what she said is everybody has a voice, and your voice can be powerful. Your voice can be powerful, and your voice is powerful. If you know victims or advocates that would like to be a part of this podcast, I would love to speak to them because understanding the warning signs, I think the awareness that we gain from understanding what others have gone through educates all of us. So yes, if you know somebody who wants to use their voice, please have them contact me. And if you're interested in the Always Bev class, whether in person or online, please visit my website at alwaysbev.com. Looking ahead to season four, we will have more advocates join the show. In fact, we're going to start off with sex trafficking. We are even going to go back and visit my sister Bev's story because I have uncovered so much over the last six months. Some of the recordings I think will shock you. I still have yet to share the whole story. I'm your host, Barb Jordan. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Always Bev, The Ripple Effect.